it's difficult to catch HIV. You have to have open to open, basically. And so if someone gets on HIV medicine or HIV injections, either way, you have so little virus in your system, if you are undetectable, which means I think 30 to 60 copies, there's different versions of the virus in your system and it hides in your organs. If you are at that low of a level for six months, if you've suppressed the virus and you're undetectable for six months or more, you don't transmit it even through unprotected sex. In 2017, I had it all, but it was a world built on a secret that I didn't want to deal with and could no longer contain. And that's when it all came crashing down. You can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out. Welcome to this episode of Falling Out. I'm your host, Brian Kennedy. Across the aisle from me here is my fabulous co-host, Coleman Charles. Coleman? <laughs> How's it going? We have a absolutely fascinating episode for you today. I am so excited to be honoring 25 years of Legacy with Melissa Grove. Melissa Grove has been the executive director of Legacy for 25 years. She's been a part of Legacy even longer than that. And she is an absolute force in our community here in the Dallas area and beyond. I am honored to have her on the show. I'm just so excited about what she's going to talk about today and, and the stories and the, the mindset and vision behind what Legacy Cares is. Melissa Grove, a licensed professional counselor, has served as the executive director of Legacy Counseling Center Incorporated since 1999, transforming the agency into the largest provider of mental health services for HIV-positive people in the South. She founded the Grace Project National Conference for Women Living with HIV, which hosts 200 HIV-positive women annually. Other projects include founding Legacy Founders Cottage, an AIDS care facility, and creating the Centralized Housing Solution, homebaseforhousing.org website. Her newest program, Legacy Master Leasing, sublets apartments to homeless people living with HIV. Melissa Grove speaks around the nation on issues pertaining to mental health, relationships, and muscular dystrophy, HIV, and chronic illness. She additionally has a private therapy practice in the Dallas area. She was named the 2014 Public Citizen of the Year through the North Central Texas National Association of Social Workers and received the 2015 Black Tie Dinner Kukling Humanitarian Award. Currently, Melissa has served as the National Consumer Advisory Committee for the Muscular Dystrophy Association and consults on the STS for HIV Project, a project of the National Institute on Drug Abuse. Please welcome to the show, Melissa Grove. Melissa, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you, Brian, for having me. There is so much I want to talk about. You are one of my favorite people. You are one of my Aww. heroes for the work that you've done in our community and the work you've done with Legacy. But you've been doing this quite a while. Yes. I started here actually 32 years ago. So... There's about 20 of those years that I don't know all the details. So let's just start off. I want to kind of go back in time a little bit and let's talk about what got you here. You know, obviously you've worked as a therapist, you've worked in mental health. So was this always the plan? Like, let's go back to 32 years ago and how did you get involved with Legacy? Well, um, 30 plus years ago when I was 18, I was getting ready. I went to college for theater. I actually had a Greer Garson theater scholarship in Santa Fe, New Mexico. So I went and did that for a couple of years. I got a diagnosis of muscular dystrophy one Christmas. I thought, oh, this isn't going to work. You know, acting is very physical. I thought, I don't see how I can make a career of this if I physically can't move very well. So I thought, well, what do I like about acting? I thought, you know, I really like the study of people, you know, the characters, motivation. I thought, you know, maybe I could do psychology. And so I changed majors, went to UT Austin, um, and went and got my master's degree at North Texas to become a therapist. You have to do an internship. So I was looking around at different places, and they said, well, there's this one place, Legacy, it just opened. Uh, nobody wants to work there, though. It's people with AIDS. I thought, ooh. That would be so hard. That would be so challenging. 
I want to do that. That sounds like if I could do that, I could handle North Dallas Housewives without problem down the road, you know, (laughs) do the hardest thing. So I kind of embraced the challenge. And of course, being in the theater, I had known a lot of gay people and, um, of course, really felt the injustice that they had to deal with. And so it was something that I was very passionate about. And I had a friend who knew I did that internship at Legacy. And when we started, it was like, oh, you know, we were doing therapy in our cars because we only had like one office. But we used to go sit out at Oaklawn Park and do sessions outside. And, you know, we owned a a little mini fridge was our most prized possession. Then that got stolen. And uh, (laughs) it was uh, very grassroots, to say the least. Uh, None of the therapists were paid. It was all very volunteer. The phone would ring, and it would be somebody in a really bad place. And we'd say, can someone see this guy? You know, and so uh, it was very loosey-goosey in the early days, but it was a lot of people who really cared passionately about helping people with AIDS. So when you started here, was that about 1990? Oh, Lord. You know, Brian, it's been like one really long day. (laughs) You know what I mean? I am the worst with dates. Yeah. Because I think something just happened yesterday. It was 15 years ago. It's all one really long day, but let's see. Hold on. Let me take you back. I think uh, 90 Legacy opened in 1989. I think I started my internship in 1990 to 91-ish. Tell us a little bit about just the the cultural climate. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners are younger and just not really understanding what I think for most people think AIDS and HIV in the early 80s, but in the 90s, we still didn't have antiretroviral right. medication. Right. It was still plugging and we were losing a lot of people. Yes. So yes. kind of paint us a picture of what that looked like when you started. Well, it was, uh, you know, AZT had basically come out and people who were taking it looked terrible. They looked gaunt. You could really identify people who had AIDS in those days and really people were lepers their gay friends wouldn't be around them hospitals wouldn't keep them nursing homes wouldn't take them their families were abandoning them it was really difficult times there was a lot of confusion about how hiv was spread some people thought you got it from mosquitoes and toilet seats sadly some people still think that it's it's amazing the breadth of Uh, lack of knowledge about HIV. Some people think today it's cured, and other people think you'll die instantly. So, you know, it's like that's a pretty broad range of misinformation. But basically back then, uh, it was very isolating. People were very ashamed, and they were hiding it from even their gay friends. Uh, They were lepers, and uh, it was a very challenging time, and there was no real hope on the horizon. AZT, it's kind of like using a huge sledgehammer to knock in a tiny nail. It wasn't really doing the trick, but that's all they had. And so people would come and pretty much feel like their life was over. They probably were heading for death. In the early days, it was a lot of grief and loss, a lot of uh, embarrassment, a lot of shame. You still see shame as a very relevant theme to this day. Um, I don't care how much someone is out as a gay person. I've yet to find someone who isn't still harboring so much shame. And I think that's just because societally that's put on there. Even when people are open, even when they're around accepting people, that shame is still there because it's so pervasive in our society. I have loved watching things grow and change. One thing I like to mention to people is, you know, the FDA gets drugs approved pretty quickly these days. AIDS is the reason why, because basically the gay advocates push for that. The gay rights movement was pushed forward by AIDS because people, gay men were like, I'm sick of watching my friends die. This is ridiculous. And it really galvanized a lot of people hiding in the shadows it really galvanized them to become advocates. So it's been very exciting for me over the last 32 years to watch how certain things have progressed, expanded societally, how things have changed, 
how accepting parents are on, you know, compared to where they were and how accepting gay men are of their own situation compared to where I started. But it was very um, eye-opening to me as a, as a little 22-year-old, I think. I was a little baby, and uh, my eyes were open quite a bit. I've learned quite a bit about the gay community. I feel like I'm a, I feel like I'm a um, honorary gay person. I, if, if you... If no one's ever given you that title, I will. Well, I was. So, so you're now our, our honorary <laughs> gay person. You get a card and everything. For, yeah, falling out LGBTQ. Brian, do I need to remind you, I did win the Straight Ally Award from the Dallas Voice, <laughs> and I was the Grand Marshal in the Gay Pride Parade. I remember. I'm just going to th- and I got the Kugler. You're probably more gay than I am in, there, in reality. I definitely have been to more gay bars than you have. That's true. And I definitely have seen five times the drag shows you've seen. That is true. So yes, uh, honorary gay person. But I really have loved my time at Legacy. So I was the intern. I went and worked in the private sector in psychiatric care for scattered site housing, for serious mental illness like schizophrenia. And then I ran a geropsychiatric ward. And I was, again, a baby at the time. And it was very, very challenging work. As you know, Brian, mental health work is very challenging. Working with serious mental illness is really hard. Uh, But I like a challenge. I guess I like the chaos of it because it's never every day is very different. And as I like to joke with the next person coming to take my position at Legacy, Brooke, for years I've said never boring because that's the one thing you can say about working in mental health and especially in an executive director position. But anyway, just to keep the story moving... I went away for a couple of years. I kept my therapy group. I had a group of 10 people. Back then, we did a lot more groups, support groups, therapy groups. And there was a group in the room next to us that met at the same time. And they lost eight of their members in one month. That's how much people were dying back then. Literally, everything I opened, everything I wore was black. And, okay, I'm still wearing black. But um, I did get a few other colors in my wardrobe. But Legacy um, was really the one place people could go that was a safe space. And we've always had a very grassroots mentality. Our administrative rate, if you look at our 990 tax form, 14%. Now, that is incredibly low for a nonprofit. That means 86% of the money goes directly to patient services, directly to patient care. That is incredibly low, and it's really on the backs of therapists like Brian, who basically, I say, please think of this as paid volunteering, because that's what you're doing here. You're getting paid to volunteer, because it's um, definitely not market rate. But everybody who works at Legacy is so incredibly dedicated to what we're trying to do here, because it is so important. But I left for a little bit. Then the board at the time said, you know, we are tired of watching our clients die alone with no one to care for them. And so they would say, uh, my, I'd call my client and say, are you coming to your session? they go, oh, I'm just too sick. Well, everybody lived in the neighborhood, which is right here in Oak Lawn, and so we would just go over to their homes and do counseling there. And that just made the sense to go to their homes. But often when we got there, people were literally dying alone. They're laying on the sofa, in soiled clothes, couldn't reach a glass of water. It was really ridiculous. It was heartbreaking. And we were like, okay, this guy doesn't need therapy. He needs someone to feed him and get him something to drink, change, put a diaper on him, change his diaper. You know, so we opened Legacy Founders Cottage. The board members at the time uh, recognized this need, and so they identified a home. It was... um, Little home in Oak Cliff, it was a duplex. They converted it to a a facility, and it was in very rough shape. There was a boat out back with syringes in it, and the place needed a lot of work. Tons of volunteers came in and renovated that place and made it possible, and they hired me to come in as program director. They told me it would be a part-time job, and, of course, it was making just a fraction of what I had been making at my pri- at the uh, other company I was working for. Uh, but I thought, you know, I could do this for one year. First I said no. 
I was like, let's see, a much, a brand new program with no funding uh, for a fraction of my current income. No. But then I had a friend who I had lost to AIDS, and I thought, you know what, I'm going to do this in his honor, um, Randy Cullum. I'm going to do this in his honor, and I'll get him set up for a year. Then I'll go back to the cushy private practice stuff. Well, here I am, uh, however many years later. It was a three-bedroom home, and we it was our technically it's a licensed special care facility where we provide hospice end-of-life care. So we bring in a company to do the medical care. We're not a medical facility or housing facility. So we take people who really, at the time when I opened it, everybody was coming to die. We were just trying to provide a home, homey, lovely place with people to be surrounded by love and to be properly cared for in their final days. And like I said, the hospitals wouldn't keep these folks and nursing homes would not take them. So this was it. It was this or them dying alone at home. So it was very intimidating uh, working in a facility where everybody was coming to die in a peaceful way. I had never even been around a body. Uh, The first person who died was within days of us opening. I forced myself to walk in there and I did it backwards. I kind of walked side, kind of walked sideways in. I'm like, okay, now turn around and learned a lot about end of life care. There was a lot of figuring it out as I went. You know, that's really what legacy was about. But we did have very dedicated people all along the way. People, one person can absolutely make a difference, and at legacy they do that all the time. So we opened the cottage. It was really scary. It was very hard. We had to figure it out. We had no money. The families would bring in the food for the patients. We didn't even have funding for food. We really had funding for nothing. Um, Some of the initial nurse aides were volunteers. So we kept this going, but as the years rolled on, we found funding sources to help support it. And then in 1999, the executive director of Legacy, he was a gay man with HIV from India. And he thought, the chances of me getting my citizenship in Texas are incredibly low. In fact, zero. So he moved to New York to go pursue that, and I got promoted to executive director. I was so pleased and proud of myself. I was so proud of this new job. I was very excited. Um, Only about 10 years later, when I was looking at financial records, it hit me. The agency was closing. I was too stupid to know financially that this, the place was done, put a fork in it, it's over. They just pawned the job off on me because I didn't know any better. And I was so pleased with this, gra- I was excited with my new little blue suit going into my new job with my fancy title. I was too dumb to recognize they hadn't done an audit in years, three years at that point. They had no money. I had to borrow $6,000 my first couple of weeks to just keep the doors open. And it was uh, very, 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 very hard. And But like I always say, thank God I was too stupid to know that because we wouldn't be here today. Let, let me ask this question, because you talk a lot about, you know, the first body you saw. You talked about people dying on you. This is kind of a therapist question because, you know, as a therapist, I've had some hard days, but I've not had that. And so I think a lot of new therapists get in into the profession and we talk a lot about self-care and taking care of yourself. But like, how were you able to make it through that? Or like, what did you need to do as a therapist for yourself if, if you're having, you know, you have a group and it, the whole group is decimated in a month because of AIDS? Like, how do you keep yourself in a place where you can provide the best level of care and take care of you? Well, you're a youngster, but self-care is kind of a new concept. (laughs) We didn't really think about self-care. We just took care of business, whatever needed to be done. It was really interesting because I found there were people I got really close to because they'd been there a while, and they would pass away, and I'd be perfectly fine. And then there'd be another person who I barely knew, and they weren't there long, and they would die, and it would be incredibly devastating. And I was always very confused, like, why? That doesn't even make sense. 
But I also think it had a lot to do with what was going on in my personal life at the time. If I was in a good place mentally, I could handle it. If I wasn't, it was tougher. I just keep going back to the greater good and why I'm here and the good that I'm able to do for people. And yeah, I mean, it's been a very challenging career. It's been tough. Like I said, self-care, not exactly a forte until now, which is why I'm retiring. I'm going to start looking into this self-care thing. It sounds interesting. But no, I mean, I don't think that was really in my mindset. Uh, It is a survival mode. You know, you just do what you have to do. But I do think now I respect and understand the value of that. And I don't think I've done that till very very recently. Started thinking, yeah, that could be a good thing. It's hard because you cannot take your clients' successes as your own, and, and and even the compliments from your clients, and personalize those too deeply because that will mean, if they things go wrong, then you're to blame. So you have to depersonalize that piece of it, that you are there to guide and lead and support. But you're not doing it for them, and you're not responsible. Ultimately, it is their choices. Their success is their success. It's not your success. You know, let's be honest. When our clients praise us up and down, and, you know, I love to hear it. Any therapist who says they don't is lying. But uh, you can't take it too much as your own victory because it is your client doing the work. And you can give them tools and, you know. But therapists, we're not gods. We we have a tool. I always tell people, you know, when you're a carpenter, you have a hammer, a saw, other things carpenters have. Uh, when you're <laughs> a therapist, all you really have is you as a person, your knowledge that you have gained, that you continue to cultivate, uh, which is why this podcast is so great. Also, your experiences I'm a big fan of not sharing too much of my personal experiences. I think this is the client's time. This is not my time to talk about me. You know, I think that can be a very selfish thing for a therapist to do, in my humble opinion. It really needs, you need to kind of be, I think, somewhat of a blank slate for your client so they can project onto you what they need to, in my opinion. Sometimes you may have a relevant experience and there may be appropriate times to do that. That's a whole nother podcast, isn't it? You can't take it all too personally. And then you give your client the best you the best you, you can every day. Yeah. Tell me this real quick. Kind of going back to the history, I want to kind of lean into just yeah. that. My first question before we get back to that financial disaster that you, you described was, was the climate of Dallas. Obviously, it's not New York. It's not San Francisco. So what were some of those challenges or pitfalls that you had navigating this particular community and really, you know, getting the resources you needed, connecting to a community? I mean, I know a lot of our listeners don't think that Dallas has a thriving gay community, but it does. Oh, absolutely. And so, you know, but but what were some of those pitfalls, challenges politically, socioeconomic, that just geographically that was Dallas? I think most of us might, our only reference might be the Dallas Buyers Club, which I know has some skewed information in it, but but what was Dallas like at that time? Well, the people you could tap for funding had to be gay, basically gay organizations. What's exciting now is you see Bank of America, you see lots of uh, corporate corporations contributing to Black Tie Dinner, to DIFA. These are things you didn't see in the early days, and the gay community has always, I'm always stunned at how They give and they give and they give and they give and they give. I mean, it's such a generous group of people. I don't think the average population gives anywhere near as much as the gay community. They really do support time and time again, over and over. But in the early days, the only people I could hit up for money were gay organizations because nobody else would dream of giving money to a gay organization. Thank goodness that's changing. It's very exciting. I remember the first black tie dinner I went to where they had like a mainstream corporate company and my jaw hit the ground and I was so excited about that because I also thought it was so validating to everybody who attended. And also DIFA is a great organization because DIFA has people from the design you know, industry, obviously, and you attract a wide variety of people. And I've always felt so passionately about this cause 
even though I'm a straight woman who's married, uh, this has always been a very, to me, it's, to me, it's a duh situation. Duh. You know, these are my friends. These are regular folks. I remember my first couples counseling with a gay couple. And I thought, oh, I don't know if I'm going to know how to do this. First of all, your, your first couples counseling is intimidating. And your second one and your 50th one. <laughs> couples counseling is an intimidating process. You are stepping into a relationship. Oof, it's challenging. But I remember thinking, this is no different. I mean, there are obviously are nuances and differences. But on the whole, it's not really different. And it was amazing to me how similar it was. But I've enjoyed that. But, you know, at the beginning of Legacy, we were just trying to be responsive in any way we could. When I started, we only did mental health counseling and the cottage. And I'd opened the cottage. So now I'm in the mental health. Another agency in town closed. And I said, well, we should be getting the mental health stuff because we already do that. And the county said, well, you all have to take the substance abuse piece. I'm like, I don't really know any, you know, I don't really want to work with substance use. That's another thing for therapists that cracks me up. We don't get the luxury of not working with substance use. I really feel like schools do a disservice, master's programs. They do not nearly give you enough work in substance use. They they, uh, compartmentalize it. And that is ridiculous because you think you can escape that. I thought, oh, well, I'll just work with mental health clients. Ha, 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 ha. Well, and especially in our community as well. <laughs> well, honestly, every community. And even if someone doesn't use alcohol, for example, and their parents have never had a drop, that doesn't mean they don't come from an alcoholic household because their their parents' parents could have been raging alcoholics and they could have that mindset so no one really escapes seeing people with substance abuse issues or substance abuse situations. So I think that's a real disservice that you know our schools do. And I, everyone's entitled to my opinion, as I like to say. <laughs> so I'm always very happy to share that with the schools as feedback. You need to do more there. But anyway, I didn't know anything about substance use. So I brought in a woman, Susan Wisniewski, who worked at Green Oaks. And she came in and she, I'm sorry, Timberlawn, and she came in and started our substance abuse program. And so we've had those two programs since 1999. And then over the years, we were able to look around at other things that were needed. Also in 1999, when I was ED, I had been a therapist to the women. I was like one of the few women therapists we had. So I would see the tiny little smattering of women with HIV. At first it was a nurse, and then there were others. I noticed that the women would never come to counseling. They call with tremendous problems, health issues, family issues, domestic violence issues, and HIV. I'd say, come in for counseling, and they never would. So I was like, why? Why? I'm, I couldn't understand it. I realized I was trying to force them into my model of what would help them. So I said, why don't you come for our pizza party for HIV and dating? The house was packed. Women I'd been begging to come in for a year all of a sudden showed up at these pizza parties. And then I do HIV in the blues, and I just use destigmatizing language. I realized the real power was in these women connecting with each other. Yes, my talks were brilliant, you know. <laughs> but I think what was really powerful was the women's ability to connect with each other. And so we started the Grace Project, and it was named after... Grace Hunt, who gave us a donation to get us out of that initial financial pickle. And she and her husband, Bill, supported us. And that's what really, there's two people who were big donors in those early years. And without them, there is no legacy. But I will say they're lovely people. And I'm really thrilled her name was Grace because (laughs) that worked out really good. If it was something funky, I don't know what we would have called the program. (laughs) But luckily, her name was Grace. And so we have the Grace Project. And that has turned into the largest conference for women living with HIV in the world. More positive women in one room than you will ever find anywhere. Right here in the buckle of the old Bible Belt. So that's been exciting. And now we've gotten funding from NextBank, which is, again, a private company, a private bank, and Vive Healthcare to support a program director. And so uh, we've got a program director now, Ratanya. 
So I pawned that off on her because that was a little side project that started taking over everything, you know. It was too much. And a lot of the women still call me on my cell phone, check in with me. You know, they call me at 6 in the morning, what color are the T-shirts this year? You know, (laughs) so I'm going to keep my same phone number because I have a lot of connections with people. But we did that. Um, Another thing we identified over the years is housing was such a challenge. At a certain point at the cottage, we started taking people who were not dying because so many so many advances had been made, but they were being released from the hospital, sent to be on hospice to die. I'd say, well, this this kid's 24. Has he even been tried on the new HIV meds? No. Okay. Well, they were private hospitals, and they weren't there to provide free thousands of dollars of meds. So they and there was no place to send these folks to recuperate. So they would just put them on hospice so they qualify for my housing. I was like, that is ridiculous. Don't do that. Just send them to me. And then we would get them in with the public hospitals. And they get them on meds. And two months later, they move out and be perfectly fine. But it's really terrifying because without the cottage, hospitals are just putting people in cabs to the homeless shelter. Because when they got sick, they lost everything. What do you do when you have no money, you're still sick? The hospital can't keep you forever, and I understand their position. They're not the housing solution. So that's why the cottage is so, so important, but we do transitional care. I would try to find housing for these folks when we got them better, and housing is really hard. I won't get into that. That's another talk. But housing is very difficult to find, and I would spend, after 32 years in the this realm, I couldn't find resources. I thought, heaven forbid, someone who doesn't know anyone and isn't connected. And so we started homebaseforhousing.org. And you can go to our website, homebaseforhousing.org. Everybody can access it. And it's got utility assistance. That's particularly relevant these days. It's got domestic violence shelters, links to Section 8 forms. It's got everything, every low-cost apartments, relatively low-cost apartments, I should add. Anyone can use Home Base for Housing because housing is HIV prevention. But if you are a positive person and everybody we serve is positive, you can meet with our team. They will interview you and talk to you about what you can access and what would work for you and help you. And that's uh, led by Jefferlyn, and she is amazing. And her uh, other case manager is Andy. They really care. They really work hard to get everybody into services. Now, let's say you're living at the shelter. If you're shelter certified living at a shelter, you can go through home base. And if you qualify, get on the waiting list for our other program, which is our master leasing program. Because the city came to us and said, what else can we do? Where does the money need to go? We said, we just flat need apartments. People don't want to be in programs. Everybody wants to just live in their own space. So we rent apartments and we sublet them to people who are homeless with HIV. And we help them become independent and get jobs and pretty soon they're making so much money, they have to give us 30% of their income per HUD regulations, but we reinvest that and that provides housing for other homeless people. But pretty soon they're making so much money that they're giving us so much money they could afford their own rent. We go, good point. Let's get you your own apartment. And then they move out. And so we're a springboard for independence. But, you know, all these programs I've described, they're challenging. It's a lot of work. Um, Homelessness is not just about a space. There's a lot of wraparound issues that are involved with homelessness. So you can't just provide a cheap apartment, a bunch of cheap apartments, and expect that to solve the problem. You really have to provide the wraparound services if that's going to work. So anyway, we've added, we've got five programs, Counseling, Cottage, Home-Based, Master Leasing, and Grace Project. And so I'm pretty proud because it's been a very satisfying career. I can look back and go, wow, I made that. Here, here's a story you'll appreciate, Brian. I was at the Grace Project, and we do a fashion walk at the end. People just put their best outfits on, and we give them modeling lessons. And at the end, they anybody who wants to... Um, introverts need not apply. They can go watch the show, but they can strut their stuff on the runway. It is the most jubilant, exciting moment in my year every year. It is such a fun thing to see. 
The women are just strutting their stuff. It is such a joyous moment. Well, after it was over, the DJ from AVSD Pro, they are a great audiovisual company, and they always do me a solid, do me a lot of favors, you know, to get that going. But they uh, put on some dance music. Well, all of a sudden, everybody's doing the same dance. And I'm like, these ladies don't know each other. How are they all doing the same dance? I thought I'm in a flash mob. <laughs> so I was so excited. So I'm looking around for the camera. I've got this huge smile on my face, looking around for the camera, waiting for the person to pull me up into something. And it just never happens. And I'm like so confused. I'm like, what is happening here? So I asked somebody, how does everybody know the same dance? She said, Melissa, that's the Dougie. <laughs> it's a line dance. Everybody knows that. I'm like, well, not me, evidently. <laughs> I felt like kind of a fool. I felt like kind of a fool because I thought I was in a flash mob. But the neat thing about it was, is after I got over my embarrassment because I didn't know what a Dougie was or the Dougie was or a Dougie, whatever you Dougie, <laughs> um, I kind of stood back and looked and I thought, wow, I dreamt this whole thing up and look at what's going on. And that's what's so exciting about as I transition as of August 15th, will no longer be ED. And I've been the ED for like 25 years. I know I'm so excited because we have Brooke Henderson is our new executive director. She ran the cottage. She knows how challenging things are, or she thought she knew how challenging. But we've been, I've been training her for two years to prepare for this. The first year we kept it real quiet, didn't tell anybody, because I wanted her to give a chance to chicken out if she's like, oh, I don't think so. But no, she hung in there like a trooper. And so I really think she's going to be doing a great job. So uh, I hand it over to Brooke, and I feel really com comfortable and confident. She said, well, what would you have done if I said no? I said, I had no plan B because I really wanted you that badly, mainly because I think she's got the heart, the brains, the strength, the fortitude, the ability to handle such a difficult job. I mean, you're getting calls at 4 in the morning, 6 in the morning, 10 p.m., all day. You've got 300 plates to spin. You have to drop 50 a day. If people want us to drop less plates, then give us more money or let us spend more of the money that we now spend on patients on administrative stuff. But I, I just, am, I'd rather the money go to patients. So things are not always the slickest. Beware of a charity who all their stuff is so slick and perfect. I think they're spending too much money on that kind of stuff. I'd rather be a little raw, a little raggedy around the edges here and there and have that money care for patients because I as a donor want that's what I want to have happen with my money we've got a great team here and so excited about the people working here we've we've got people like Tammy at the front desk she's been here 17 plus something many 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 years Sherry at the cottage same thing I mean we've got so many longtime people who've been connected and you don't stick around in this world because it's there are so many easier ways to make a living, but than working at a nonprofit, and that's why we really just have the most beautiful group of people here. We don't have a stinker on the lot; just love every single person here, including you, Brian. It's been a real gift getting to know Brian. I'm always so amazed at his initiative and his gumption i see a lot of myself in you brian no but um <laughs> no but brian's all ambition and i love it and he makes stuff happen and that's the sort of person you want to be around someone who can make stuff happen and pursue things i appreciate the compliment let me ask this because legacy has become so ingrained into our community here in dallas in the lgbt community one of the things i think talking with members of the community that surprised me is a lot of people don't know that Legacy only serves HIV positive clients, especially in, in the counseling area, because Legacy Counseling had become such a uh, go-to, you know, name, a recognizable name, you know, at every event, every charity, it's like Legacy Counseling, Legacy Counseling. So when people say, hey, I need uh, LGBT counseling, I'll go to Legacy. And I, I think that's something, maybe that's a miscommunication or maybe it's by design because one of the things I, I was going to kind of tie into that is I think a challenge that you probably had to face over the last 25 years of even getting people into the room is stigma. 
And so how have you worked to combat stigma around HIV and AIDS over those years? And what has been the outreach to the community to let people know what you do and how it works? Yeah, it was by design. Yeah. (laughs) It wasn't that we don't have any money for marketing. Yeah, that's what it was. I did that on purpose. No, I mean, really, we are the primary behavioral health provider in the area for HIV. And so, and, you know, we we do have many groups uh, that support us. There's many groups like the Fire Dancers and There's the roundup, you know, I could go on and on, the Hidden Door. The Hidden Door is a huge supporter of us. And if you go to have a cocktail at the Hidden Door, tell them Legacy sent you as a favor to me. Because did you know they run that like a nonprofit? After everybody's paid, they put the money in a trust. And that has really saved our bacon over the COVID years. They've contributed lots of unattached money, meaning we can use it for whatever we need. And the Roundup's been doing stocking auction for us for 20, 20-something years. Again, never quote me on the dates, but a long time because they lost a bartender 20 years ago or so at the cottage. You know, we have really been kept alive by the community. So I'm glad our name is out there. But as far as the stigma piece, I mean, we try, we're in Oak Lawn. We try to be a little away from the fray. We're not right on Oak Lawn Street. But people have their doctors and their doctors trust us because they know we do good jobs. Their case managers trust us. So I think we are known for going above and beyond with clients. And that's just sort of good reputation and word gets around. And their friends tell them, you know, you got to go to Legacy. Now, if someone calls us and they are seeking any service we don't provide or they're in a population we don't serve, believe me, one of our core values is to make a warm referral. We don't just say, we don't do that. I would never dream of that. I had someone calling me for relationship assistance who lived in Germany, who wasn't gay or had HIV. I'm going to take time with even that guy to make sure he gets the care he needs. That's just, I think, going the extra mile, really being dedicated to patient care. Those are some of the things I think that got us out there. And as far as the stigma, I mean, that's a huge, that's a whole nother show. Brian, we got eight shows to do now. Good, good. I'll be free as of. (laughs) As of August the 15th. Stigma is, you know, we already know how to prevent HIV. We know how to treat successfully HIV. People can get an injection in each buttock six times a year, and they don't even have to take medicine. And then they're undetectable. Then U equals U, and they can't transmit the virus. We know how to take PrEP. PrEP is a preventative medication or now injection you can take. So really, the word is out on all these things, but the the barrier is stigma because people don't get tested, they don't get on PrEP, or they don't treat their HIV, or they don't treat it seriously enough. So stigma is the thing that keeps us from eliminating HIV from our society. So stigma is a huge issue and we think about it every day. I also want to highlight Angel Mendoza. He is our community outreach therapist and he works with case managers to help them help their clients learn how to break through that stigma with clients about stigma for behavioral health care. Because people think, oh, you're, that means you're crazy or you're weak. And there's a lot of mental health stigma But that stigma also affects us for funding because there are organizations, there's one organization in town who funds every mental health place in town except for us. And I even wrote it for the Grace Project for the Women thinking I could trick them. But nope, you know, they know we mainly serve people with HIV and have a lot of gay clients. And so they don't fund us, which is a real shame because we're really doing the good, the hard work out here. But stigma is a huge problem, yes. You know, you tapped on it a little bit, and I want to I emphasize this for our listeners because I know there's a, a large portion of our audience that is cisgender, heterosexual, maybe don't have any experience with the gay community outside of this podcast. I, I was shocked a few years ago because I had a former student call me because he was living with a friend who happened to be positive, and he called me terrified saying, what do I need to look out for? And, and I said, what do, you, what do you mean? And he said, 
well, like, how can I catch it? And I said, are you having sex with him? And he said, no. And I said, okay. He said, but what if I step out of the shower and he had a wet towel on the floor? And I said, are you having sex with him? <laughs> and he said, no. And I said, then then we're, we're in a better place. But it's like, there's still so much misinformation. I think people's minds, even in our own community, some of it is still in 1986. Oh, I, I've had a therapist apply for a job. And I said, well, we're really not hiring at the time. But I thought they're really passionate about HIV. I'll, I'll meet with them. I said, well, how do you feel about working with people with HIV? And they said, well, do you provide protective gear? It's a master's level therapist. I said, yes, if you're going to have sex with a client, I'll give you a condom. <laughs> oh, I'm not going to do that. I would never do that. You were planning on sharing needles? Well, no, of course not. I go, well, how do you think you're going to catch HIV? I mean, I have my tolerance. If someone barely has a GED, you know, if someone doesn't even have their GED, maybe I'll give them a pass. But if you are a master's level therapist and you don't know the basics, I mean, I, my tolerance is incredibly low for certain things. So for our audience, let's play kind of you know ignorant here. What is the status of HIV today in 2022? Where are we at? I know you mentioned the injections and U equals U, which which I know about probably because you taught me or because, you know, I'm typed into the community. And, and But a lot of people don't know what that is. And and they still think that HIV is a death sentence. So where are we at in 2022? Again, a whole nother, whole nother podcast. But I will say this. It's difficult to catch HIV. You have to have open to open, basically. And so if someone gets on HIV medicine, or HIV injections, either way, you have so little virus in your system, if you are undetectable, which means I think 30 to 60 copies, there's different versions of the virus in your system and it hides in your organs. If you are at that low of a level for six months, if you've suppressed the virus and you're undetectable for six months or more, you don't transmit it even through unprotected sex. So it's really amazing. And, you know, that was stunning to me after years of pushing condoms, condoms, condoms. I got my car washed. The guy opened the trunk to wipe it down. Giant case of condoms. And I'm like, he was looking at me like, what are you up to? <laughs> and uh, I use that opportunity. I use every opportunity to talk about legacy or HIV. Uh, no valet or car wash person is free from my wrath. <laughs> but I gave him a little lesson and then I gifted him a giant case of condoms. I said, you're now an HIV advocate. <laughs> Go into your community and spread the word, you know. And mainly because I was sick of driving around with a case of condoms in my trunk of my car. You know, HIV has come such a long way. It's no longer a death sentence. You can live a normal lifespan. You can have children. Obviously, everything ha is contingent on medically managing it. So better to get tested sooner rather than later. There's some signs that HIV can get into your brain, even if you're asymptomatic from any problems. So don't think, uh, ignoring it is not the answer. Getting tested and dealing with it, while terrifying and scary on one level, is really your best chance of not having any problems from it. So I definitely encourage, and the CDC says anybody from 13 to 60 should get tested for HIV. Not every year, they're not saying that, but they're saying get tested because you can go 15, 20 years without a symptom in some cases. For some people who uh, the, the virus has trouble fusing, they may never get sick. Long-term progressors is what they call them. So there's a lot to it. The technical piece, you know, so much good info, and I definitely encourage you to get a doctor on. I've got lots of good fan favorites in town that can express it very eloquently. But it's nothing to be afraid of. You're not going to get it from casual contact. Don't worry about that, everybody. You're fine. Like you said, are you having sex with them? And I think a general practice in life is if something's wet and not yours, don't step in it. <laughs> right? Can we all agree on that? I think so. Tell me, what is the future for Melissa Grove? What do you hope to see is the future of legacy? Well, I'm going to go back to medical school and finish my degree. 
No, actually, really, I'm just going to take a bunch of naps. <laughs> I've been enjoying telling people that they're like, wow. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I just want to have some space where I don't have the weight of this organization on my shoulders. It's been a lot for 25 years. It's all, I think, about 24 hours a day. I just want to create a space where I, it's not all I think about, you know. It's all I think. It's been my passion. Is that possible for you to I not? have no idea. Well, I'll check with me in a couple months. We'll okay. see where I get. I'm going to go get a lot of massages right up front. I'm going to just try to free my system. I don't know what I'm going to do. I've got lots of ideas, a lot of terrible crafting. I like to do arts and crafts. I'm terrible. I'm going to do all those terrible crafts and gift them to people I love and will be forced to take it because, you know, it's a gift. More travel. I've got all sorts of plans. I've got uh, all sorts of things I want to do. Put more energy into my own health and, uh, you know, back to the naps. Take more naps. Naps are free recreation. So uh, I'm not putting a lot of – I've told my husband, all the things I tell you I'm going to do, I reserve the right to do none of them. <laughs> and I've told Brooke that I'm more than happy to – help out with projects and really be there still. I'll always support her no matter what period. But if there's other, there may be some projects I want to do. There may be some grant research. She said, what will you commit to? I said, oh, absolutely nothing. I'm committed. That's the, the joy of being retired. I'll figure it out as I go. But I don't have anything huge on the agenda just to try something different. As far as legacy, I just see nothing but upward trajectory. We've got a really fantastic board at the moment. We've got really solid volunteers, a great staff. Obviously, this last couple of years has been brutal with the fundraising and the challenges we faced, but everybody's coming out of it, you know, and um, I really do appreciate the Bobrow, uh, the Anthony Bobrow Foundation, because uh, through the hidden door, because they've supported us. Next Bank has been huge supporting. Just all these different groups. Vive Healthcare has been huge. All these groups that really rose to the occasion. Um, and many, 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 many more that have supported us. I can't even, you know, if I start going down that path, I will be here all day. But I want to pilot those three in particular. Because thank God, because, you know, people want wonderful things to happen. They see people who are homeless or whatever. And they want to know, what can I do? And they wonder, is it the best thing to hand someone money? Well, I would say the best thing to do is to support the charities that support those folks. Because that way you know it's going to the right place. You know, I think that is one way you can be a piece of the solution, is getting involved. It doesn't have to be money. Volunteering is very important. On our website, LegacyCares.org, we've got... Uh, volunteer application on there. If you have a truck, we could use that. If you're good at data entry, we could use that. If you're a lawyer and want more meaning in your life, we can use that. We can use uh, profession, different professions. We can use people who are manual labor, people good at parties, people who like to cook. The cottage has a comfort food program. You can sign up to bring a meal. There's so many different ways you can get involved. We tend to not be a very pushy organization. We'll just cast it out there and whatever happens, happens. So, but there's so many different ways. Um, Just this morning, we had some of our board come to pick up items. If you have a business and you've got an auction item you could donate, just bring it up here and we'll put it. There's always another auction around the corner. I will point out um, Positivity is coming up. That's September 18th at SMU at the MAC ballroom uh, tickets at legacycares.org it's a lovely tea Leanne Locken and another lovely lady are going to be our co-hosts and that's a real nice one that's one you can bring your mama to that's a good one as opposed to some of the ones at the bars you may not want to bring your mama to <laughs> but there's all sorts of uh, ways to get involved on a small or large level and obviously if there's any billionaires out there who really want to help us take it to the next level. I mean, we're turning water into wine here every day. With very little money, it's amazing how much we do. One time, the Meadows Foundation, we asked them for $25,000. They saw all the wonderful work we were doing, and they gave us $100,000. They saw beyond what I asked for for what we actually needed, 
and they found us to be so cost efficient and effective as we measure our success rate that they over invested in us and it was a good investment. And then we haven't hit them up for years because um, that sustained us, you know, so that is important. Consider leaving us in your will the next time you revise your will. Your kids don't need it. You know they're going to do bad things. <laughs> Just kidding. Always be thinking of legacy is my motto. I want to segue into this, and I know we're, we're almost done today. I know that Legacy is putting together a 25000 for 25 years. I've seen it on a lot of social media. Some of you guys out there may have seen it as well. Tell us what that's about and how people can get involved. I mean, because are you just taking the 25000 and running? Because that well, sounds nice. Is that an option? No one told me that was an option. Uh, no, I mean, the best gift, I think, I thought that was really sweet of them because the best gift the community could give me for all these years of work is to support Legacy so it keeps going strong. So I can walk away without worrying, you know, because I do care and it is an important thing in my life. So um, they decided they would try to raise $25,000 in my honor, which is such a sweet thing to do. And I'm sure in the show notes you could put the link to that. but uh, Or just go to LegacyCares.org and click on Donate and put that in the notes section. Then they'll know uh, that that goes toward that twenty-five k. But I thought that was a very sweet thing to do. They're going to throw me a little party, and that's also really wonderful. But I'm not really going too far. I feel like I'm. I one one of my demands as far as leaving is I get two tickets to every legacy event, in perpetuity for the rest of time, <laughs> so I can keep showing up like a bad penny. Here I am again. They're like, you already, but. Uh, you know, I just love everybody involved, and uh, it's just a very challenging job. It takes a lot of stamina. It's a lot of work, and, you know, I thought I'm not really doing legacy of service by being around forever. Let me bring in some fresh young blood. Brooke's going to be amazing, and Charity is amazing. It's been really fun giving her all my work to do over this last year to just offload. It's been I really like the job even more now that I'm doing less. That's been really fun. Because, uh, you know, we're doing the work of several people. So it's kind of nice to have someone to offload some of that on. What advice would you give to the next potential Melissa um, that is 18, you know, or young and, and getting started, trying to get involved and, and doesn't think that they can do it? You know, what, what would you tell that person to, to give them something, hope for the future? Well, I, I would just say fake it till you make it. I think people get a lot of paralysis by perfection. They think everything's got to be perfect. Just jump in and do it. Uh, everybody has some level of imposter syndrome, but really it's just having the confidence to try new stuff. I, I try to be a really yes person. Like if free tickets to NASCAR come up, I'm pretty sure I'm not going to like that. But I'm going to go anyway because I try to say yes to experiences. Some people may think, oh, well, I don't know what I could do. Well, you're 18, yeah, you probably can lift some boxes. You know, we could use that. You know, you could probably help put pens on the auction items. There's a million things that you can do. So just get involved and uh, speak up. You know, people are ready to hear you and receive you, and the nonprofit world needs you. And I know right now the world seems like it's a crazy place and people are very cynical. Being cynical is so easy and cheap. You know, what really takes bravery is to be optimistic, hopeful, and loving. That's what takes bravery. Anybody can make a snide comment or be sarcastic. That doesn't take anything. But really keeping an open heart and mind, being optimistic and being loving, being vulnerable, all of these are the things that get you the real good stuff in life. And the real good stuff in life is not stuff. You know, it's people, it's experiences. It's things, living your life with integrity, so you can always look back and feel good about it. You know, I feel like I slept like a baby every night because I always did the right thing. And if, you know what, if my best wasn't good enough, I could live with that. I could never live with if I, you know, tried to take a shortcut. I couldn't live with that. It's too stressful. So coming up with your own personal moral code that you live by, like, if you're not a person who steals or lies, okay, well, then live up to that. And then that's what you can, that's how you build self-esteem is by creating a space where you are living a life you are proud of. 
And honestly, when you're in your 18, you're way too worried about what other people think. I often diagnose people as being in their 20s because being in your 20s is brutal. It's brutal. You really overly are too concerned about what other people are thinking about you when really everybody's just looking in their selfie mirror. No one's paying attention. You know, we're just a little speck on a tiny little planet in giant galaxies. No one's that concerned with you. Don't be so egotistical. So, you know, do things you feel good about, you feel proud of. And then, you know, some people like you. You're not everybody's cup of tea, but you don't need to be everybody's cup of tea. You need to be a handful of people's who you respect cup of tea. And so I would say don't get caught up too much in worrying about that kind of stuff because the older you get, hopefully, uh, the less you care. And caring less is a really wonderful place to be. Would you agree with that, Brian? I would. I definitely would. I think about how much I worried about things when I was younger. I remember one time I was going over to my boyfriend's house and I forgot my earrings. I was in an absolute panic. I was driving around looking for stores that were still open to buy earrings. I look back and go, that is absolutely the stupidest thing I've ever heard. You know. Did he, did he break up with you because of the no, earrings? No, I found some earrings. I would not go over there. <laughs> but again, not worrying about that. Just I love, One of my favorite quotes is, be more concerned about your character as opposed to your reputation. Because your character is who you are, and your reputation is merely what people think of you. And I thought, yeah, put your energy into your character. We don't really talk a lot about character these days. But I think that's the key to feeling satisfied. Because I always know I could look back on whatever happened, however crazy and stressful my job was, I could always look back and feel proud about what, how I lived my life, what I did, how I treated people. And so that's what gives me a huge sense of satisfaction and I think is going to allow me to walk away with my head held high at this point. And believe me, it hasn't been perfect. You're going to make one billion mistakes. If you're not making mistakes, you're really not even trying, are you? Just to reflect on the last 25 years, I'm going to put you on the spot a little bit. If you could look back and tell us one word that describes the last 25 years for you, what would it be? Mm. I'm going to say satisfying because I do feel like even though it was hard, even if it wasn't financially the best plan on the planet, I met the best people. I got to experience the coolest things. I know I changed a lot of lives just by proximity, and I find that very satisfying. I feel content. I feel happy. You know, I feel peaceful about the career I've had. Melissa, thank you so much for being on our show today. Thank you for championing our community and for giving the service of 25 plus years to a need that a lot of people ran away from. I just appreciate your time here today. It's, I know we probably could talk. I'm going to hold you up to those eight other episodes <laughs> because I, I think we could all learn from you and, and you have the time. So <laughs> we will reach out soon. But thank you. I have thank a very you. strict nap schedule, Brian. <laughs> we'll work around it. But thank you so much for being with thank us you. today. And thank you for all that you've done. I appreciate it. Thank you both for letting me be here today. And I do look forward to meeting with you again and talking about some of the core psychological stuff. Love to talk more about the therapy piece because I've had a private practice for 32 years as well on the side. So love talking about that stuff. Thank you both and have an amazing day. Coleman, let's talk with you for a minute. I, I know you were a little silent in this episode, but... I, I can read, you know, you can't see him from across the table like I can, that you're just kind of fascinated with this. And, and Melissa brings just a, a beautiful wealth of, of knowledge and history and championing of our community that I've always, she's always been one of my big heroes and she has a wicked sense of humor as well. I was enthralled with this, with this interview. What about you? I think for someone that was born probably right around the time that Melissa was getting into legacy and getting started with all of this, there, there's so much of this history with AIDS and HIV that I feel like my generation really just doesn't know about. For me, it's just so, it's so inspiring to hear of these stories from firsthand accounts because it really just adds 
for me, this depth and just this part of of my community that I, I, I don't think that most people always get to hear about. I just love being in the room with Melissa. It's just, it's just, it's just awesome to think so many of, of the LGBT organizations started during the HIV crisis, you know, even black tie dinner and DIFA and some of these others that we've had on our show or that we've talked to. And just to think it was this response, this idea of something needs to happen. We don't see anything happening out there. So I guess I'll do it. And, and I love that part of the story that Melissa thought, well, I'll go and help for a year and then I'm going to move on. And it ends up really becoming this big player in our community, this force to be reckoned with and to see that grow and see the, the thousands of people that they've been able to impact, maybe even millions over the years from the work that they've done, the advocacy they've done, you know, even second and third generation people who benefited from that willingness to step up and help. I'm just fascinated with that. Mm -hmm. I mean, and I just, I loved kind of what you had to say at the end, you know, just about just getting out and doing something. It doesn't have to be perfect. I just want to remind everyone again, go to legacycares.org, figure out ways that you can donate, that you can help. If you were inspired by these stories today at all, you know, we, we really do want to raise that $25,000 in honor of Melissa's 25 years as executive director. So please go out, you know, check out that website, figure out how you can help, how you can donate you know, what you can do to help Legacy continue their legacy of care here in the Dallas-Fort Worth area and around the world. So that's going to do it for us today here at Falling Out. Remember to follow us on Instagram, Twitter, on our website, fallingoutlgbtq.com. We will be back next week. Remember, you can't stay in the closet when the floor gives way. This is Falling Out.